0: Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Today we'll be looking at the first four verses of Matthew 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Last week we finished chapter 5, and I thought, all things being equal, that we would continue with chapter 6. But as we start this chapter, you'll notice that there is a shift in tone as well as focus. A shift from what we are to do to how we are to do what it is that we are supposed to do. Just a side note, we've dealt with this before, but the Bible wasn't written with chapter divisions. The book of Psalms is, I think, the one exception, and those aren't chapters, those are individual psalms or songs. Uh, It was not until the 13th century. Uh, that the Bible was divided up by um, a bishop, Stephen Langdon, uh, who divided it up into uh, chapters and then later on it was divided into verses, which makes it easier for us to find something when I say turn to Matthew chapter 6, for example, and we'll look at the first four verses. The danger though is that oftentimes we think that the end of a chapter means the end of a thought. It isn't always the case. However, here in the Sermon on the Mount, there is definitely a shift between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. I think the key to this shift is what we looked at last week. It's the last verse of chapter 5. And if you look at it, it says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I mentioned last Sunday, this sounds very much like what we find in the book of Leviticus in which God tells his people to be holy as he is holy. I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God, therefore be holy because I am holy. Um, But there's one of these mentions, I think, that opens up all the others, at least in my opinion, in which God says, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. In other words, God is not saying, okay, you guys need to get holy. You need to make yourselves holy. He says you need to be holy as I am holy. I am the one who makes you holy. And in this most difficult verse, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount, in which we are told to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, we hear the call of Jesus, as we saw last week, to love our enemies with the love of God, to pray for those who persecute us and to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. If we've learned anything from the Sermon on the Mount thus far, it is that we are not perfect. But we also now know that we are not alone. It is our Father who works in us. It is our Father's love that he has shown to us that we are in turn to show to others. It is Jesus who is our example in this regard, who showed perfect love. In chapter 5, the focus is on us and our attitudes, particularly in the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart. And then how we are to act in contrast to what people had been taught. And as we saw, there were six contrasts. It is the final one in which we are called to imitate our Father and we are to be perfect in our love. Something happens in this last verse. If we're not careful, we are distracted by the difficulty of it and we will fail to recognize that something has happened. I would argue that up until verse number 47, one could imagine that God is in heaven far away and yes, we want to be blessed by him and the Beatitudes are blessed of the, you know, the poor in spirit, but, but generally there's this huge gap between God and ourselves. Now there is a shrinking of the gap. Now Jesus says that we are to follow his example, and the example isn't someone of someone who is far, far away that we can't imagine, but someone who, in fact, is quite close. You could almost argue in the words of Ecclesiastes that chapter 5 is under the sun. But in verse number 48, whatever it is that blocks us from looking up toward God is ripped away, and now we see that we are to be as our Father is in our attitudes, in our ambitions, and our motivations, as we will see here in chapter 6. The key to chapter 6, certainly the first 18 verses, is the first verse. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The acts of righteousness are summed up in the three chief acts of piety among the Jewish people. They knew there were three things that they were supposed to do. They were to give to the poor, the giving of alms, they were to pray, and they were to fast. I think in dealing with these three acts, Jesus covers both the public and the private acts of piety. He covers both the commandment to love the Lord your God, as well as to love your neighbor as yourself. We'll see it today, but the Lord willing, we'll also see it in the Sundays to come, Um, In each of the three sections, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting, there are four parts that Jesus deals with. First of all, a warning that we are not to seek to be praised by people. Secondly, if we ignore this warning, we may in fact be praised by other people, but that's it. That will be the sum total of our reward. Thirdly, Jesus instructs us how we are to do this secretly, if you wish, or in private, and then, lastly, the assurance that God the Father, in fact, sees what is done privately or in secret, and will reward us. But before we go on, there's something, and I dealt with it in chapter five. We need to deal with it again. In chapter five, verse number sixteen, um, and I don't know if I mentioned this when we went through it, but it was the, the the verse on the back of the prayer card for the Woods family when my parents were missionaries in the Philippines. This was our verse, if you wish. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In which we are told to do our acts of righteousness in front of other people. And then we come to chapter 6, verse 1, and we are told, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. We are warned to be careful not to do it publicly. Is Jesus contradicting himself? I know he's not. And I think the clue to understanding this apparent contradiction lies in the fact that Jesus is dealing with different sins. In chapter 5, he is dealing with cowardice, the sin of human cowardice, in which we don't want people to know, if you wish, that we are the people of God, and so we would rather people not know what we are doing. And it is because of our cowardice that Jesus must, in fact, tell us, let your light shine before men. Uh, in our day, faith is seen as something that is private. And in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says faith is something that is to be public. This is a real problem today, as people want our faith to be private, because that's what helps us as Americans blend together a melting pot, that we keep our religious faith Private and so it doesn't interfere in our dealings with other people. They want our faith to be privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. Um, and that's why. And I don't know if you've caught this in the last decade, people no longer speak of freedom of religion. They talk about freedom of worship. I don't know if you've seen that and or heard that, and maybe it, well, it sounds the same to me, but it's not. Freedom of religion means. My faith is public. Freedom of worship means that it is private. And now the focus has been on people talking about, yes, we believe in freedom of worship, meaning we don't want your faith to get involved in the public arena. And because human nature being what it is, we may tend to be cowardly. We, we are oftentimes more than happy to keep our faith as something that is private and not something that is involved in our day-to-day lives. So Jesus in chapter 5 deals with the issue of cowardice. Here in chapter 6 he deals with human vanity. Um, That's why he tells us be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before others. That is to say we may in fact do things so that other people will notice us. May in fact cause us to perform. We will do Christian things in front of others so that they will notice us. One writer put it this way. We are to show when tempted to hide. That's chapter 5. And we are to hide when tempted to show. That's chapter 6. In both instances, however, the motivation, if you do it publicly, if you do it privately, the motivation is the same. Why are we to let our light shine before people? That they may glorify our Father in heaven. And why are we to do our acts of righteousness privately so that glory may be given to men or to God and not to us? So that people will not praise us. They, in fact, will God will be glorified and not us. So I hope I got that uh, straight. In chapter five, we do it to glorify God. And in chapter six. We do it so that the glory may be given to God and not to us. So, let's look at the first act of piety, and that is giving to those in need. This is something that is very Old Testament. Uh, This is something that we find time and time again in the Old Testament, beginning with the law. From Deuteronomy, if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in the land. By the way, later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus will quote this, and he'll say, The poor you have with you always, which indicates that there will always be opportunities for help for us to help those who are in need. It may seem cruel, it may seem harsh, we may not agree with it, but God, in fact, is in charge of things, where Adam Smith talks about the invisible hand, it it is, in fact, God who is working, and sometimes people are without because of God's working in their lives, and it gives an opportunity for those who have to be open-handed, to be generous, and to help those who are in need. Those who are in need, in fact, are to be helped. And those who have are to share, they are to help, they are to give. So we find it in the law. But then we find it in the prophets, which shouldn't surprise us, because the prophets are preaching the law. God's people had gone away from the commandments, and the prophets say, listen, what you guys are doing is wrong. You need to get back to what God said. Amos is the most famous for this, and I think most people who know about this think of Amos. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat." The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. God says, I've seen what you've done in abusing the poor. But it is not only Amos who deals with this. Isaiah does as well. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your house. In other words, they've stolen from the poor and it is in their house. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord Almighty? It's in Isaiah 3. And then later, chapter 58. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. In Zechariah, we are told, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your heart, do not think evil of each other. What was it like when Jesus came into this world? The historical context is that we find that the Jews, in fact, took this very seriously the idea of helping those who were needy. In each community, there were officials who made weekly collections of goods or money for the poor. And gifts for the poor were seen as an obligation. A man who lived in a town for 30 days was liable. He was seen as, yeah, you need to help out in the in the soup kitchen because you've been here for a month and you need to get with the program and help as everyone else does. And a man who lived in a town for three months was also seen as responsible for contributing to those who are in need. A charity box so that it could be shared with those who are in need. So when Jesus speaks here, he is not, you know, the, the question of giving to the needy is not an issue at all. Okay? You'll notice that Jesus says, when you give to the needy. He doesn't say, if you give to the needy. I can't help but wonder that if Jesus were here today, if the incarnation were to happen and he were here, that he might have to say to us in this country at this time, if you give to the poor. But when Jesus came into the world among the Jewish people, they were known for giving to the poor. The idea that you were to give was something well established. There's no question of it. They, in fact, were to do it. Giving to the needy was the duty of those who had. If you have something, you are to give to those who are without. This raises a big question, an important question. Who is needy? How do we define that someone or family or group of people are in fact needy? I would say simply that it is someone who has less than you do. This means that it is not the rich alone who are to give or those who are well off. In fact, it's been my observation that oftentimes those who are well off are less likely to give. Those who are rich oftentimes seem very tight-fisted. And it is usually those who don't have very much, but they have more than other people that are willing to share with those who are in need. So let's, let's, let's be clear as Jesus speaks here. He's not saying... You know, if you decide to help somebody out, this is how you do it. No, no, no. He's saying when you decide, when you help somebody out, this is something you must do. This is how you are to do it. The big question is, who is your audience? Who are you playing to, if you wish? The three possibilities that Jesus uh, deals with. The first, other people. The second is yourself. And the third is your Father in heaven. First of all, he deals with the others. And this is the audience which the hypocrites courted. They wanted to be seen by others when giving to the needy. They wanted to be honored by others for all that they were giving to those in need. And so they announced what they are doing as they give with trumpets. And this is difficult because historically speaking, there's no evidence that anybody went around blowing a trumpet saying, I'm giving to those who are in need. Um, we do know that the money that people gave in the temple, they were put into boxes that were shaped like trumpets. But Jesus isn't in Jerusalem, he's in Galilee, and he's talking about synagogues, not the temple. Um, It may be that it was the custom to blow the horn, to say to those who are in need, now's time for you to come and get uh, whatever, whatever it is that you need. I think it might be best for us to think in terms of the expression of tooting your own horn, blowing your own horn. That this is what the hypocrites were doing. The emphasis was on announcing, look at what I'm doing. I'm helping those who are in need. You might say, well, okay. But if somebody does that, it doesn't make them a hypocrite. It, it makes them more of a show-off. That they're a bragger. You know, they're bragging at what, of what they're doing. We looked at the matter of vainglory earlier this year when we looked at the vices. But again, it doesn't make somebody a hypocrite. What is a hypocrite? Well, there are at least three forms of hypocrisy. The first is what is most familiar to us, and that is when somebody pretends to be something that they're not. Uh, Literally, in Greek, it's someone who wears a mask. That you put on a mask that you're doing something, but in fact, what's going on is is quite different. Um, I don't think this is what Jesus has in mind here. The second form of hypocrisy is when a person is carried away by his own acting and actually deceives himself or herself. But other people know exactly what they're doing. This guy's, you know, what a hypocrite. We all know why he or she is doing this. I don't think this is what Jesus has in mind either. The third kind, I think, is what Jesus speaks of when someone deceives himself or herself into thinking that they are acting in the best interest of God and man. Look at what a wonderful thing I'm doing and in the process deceive those who are looking on. They think they're doing God's work for the good of others when in fact they're simply playing to the crowd. And Jesus calls such people hypocrites. And Jesus says, listen, you want a reward? You know what you get from the crowd when they hear what you've done for those who are in need? That people recognize you, people may even applaud, they praise you, you they honor you. That's your reward. You want a reward? That's it. The recognition from other people. So that's the first audience. And I think for most of us, that's with this passage, if you're familiar with it, I think that's what we most often associate with. But the second audience is yourself. This is the most subtle, but it's also the perpetual audience. It's the audience that is always with us. This is what Jesus is speaking of when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The right hand is seen as the hand of action. And Jesus assumes this is what you will use when you give to those who are in need. You will use your right hand. And Jesus says, basically, don't let the left hand watch or see what the right hand is doing. Uh, A lot of care must be taken here because Jesus is not calling for recklessness that we are to give recklessly, that the rent is due, but you don't care, you're going to give it, and the left hand doesn't know what's going on, and so when you go to the bank account, you don't have any money because you've given it all away. Um, I think what Jesus means is not only are we not to tell others what we are doing when we give, we're not to tell ourselves. We're not to meditate on how wonderful we are Because we have helped other people. We are not to be self-conscious in our giving. Because self-consciousness may in fact deteriorate into self-righteousness. And you think, what a wonderful person I am. I've helped someone less fortunate than myself. John Stott wrote of this, So subtle is the sinfulness of the heart that it is possible to take deliberate steps to keep our giving secret from men. We don't want other people to know while simultaneously dwelling on it in our minds in a spirit of self-congratulation. We don't tell others, but we keep telling ourselves, look at what I've done, look at what I've done, look at who I helped. And Jesus says this is not to be the audience. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a church martyr, said, it is even more pernicious if I turn myself into a spectator of my own prayer performance. I can lay on a very nice show for myself, even in the privacy of my own room. I'm performing for myself. Look at what a great person I am. Again, we must be careful, because Jesus is, I think, doesn't intend to be taken literally. There is nothing wrong with keeping a record of what we have given. Um, If you write a check as you give either here at church or to a charity, you know what you gave. And being a good steward, taking care of what God has given you, requires oftentimes keeping track of things. Jesus would speak of counting the cost. If you're gonna be my disciple, you better count the cost. How much is this going to cost me? The issue here is self-congratulation. The issue is myself as the audience. It is not to be other people, It is not to be myself. It is the third audience that we are to seek, and it is your father. This is the proper audience. That which is done in secret is seen by your father. One commentator put it this way, he, that is Jesus, means that we ought to be satisfied with having God as our only witness. It is as though he's the only one who knows what in fact has transpired. We may fool others in thinking how wonderful we are. We may even fool ourselves. Look at what a great thing I've done. We cannot deceive God. We are stewards. What we have done, what we have comes from God, and our actions are seen by God, who is our Father. The context is different and the point is different, but I think it is clear that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 applies here. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court, that is, others as the audience. Indeed, I do not even judge myself, that's self as audience. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me uh, innocent, still self as audience. It is the Lord who judges me. There's the audience. That's who, if you wish, we play to. That is who is seeing what we do. In what we perceived last week to be a very difficult verse, we're called to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus expands our vision. He makes us aware of our Father in heaven. And by God's grace, our perspective is changed. We don't simply now live under the sun. There is a connection with God, and it will, I think, reach its apex in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not these, not these things that are... Eternally separated, but that are, in fact, by God's grace coming together. We are to become so conscious of our Father in heaven that he is here watching us by his spirit that we we cease to be self-conscious. You see, when we are self-conscious, we forget that God is conscious of what we're doing. We become the audience that we're playing to. Or when we're conscious that other people are watching us, then we forget that, in fact, God is watching as well. One pastor wrote, Ultimately, our only reason for pleasing men around us is that we may please ourselves. When people praise us, we like that. And so we may play to others, and in the process, in a sense, it plays to ourselves. And Jesus says, No. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But then some would argue that Okay, this is good, Jesus. What you're saying is good. I'm not to play to others. I'm not to be self-conscious. I'm only to think of God. But then he, he completely messes it up by talking about reward. That if, if he hadn't mentioned the issue of reward, we would be okay. But in fact, he mentions it, and it seems to taint or contaminate the whole issue, the whole issue of motive. Better not to mention reward, uh, and then, then we could just get on with the task at hand. Because if you mention reward, then all of a sudden I'm thinking about reward, you know, and, and, and maybe I, instead of doing what I'm supposed to do, my focus changes. The question is, what is the reward that Jesus is speaking of here when he talks about that you will be rewarded by your father in heaven? What is the reward that is intended? Stop and think a minute. What, what is that reward that the father in heaven will give us? What what could be the reward that God will give us? I would argue it is this, that when we give to those who are in need, in love, when we see that need answered and relieved and filled, that is our reward. That is our reward. John Stott again, who wrote on the Sermon on the Mount, said... When through his gifts the hungry are fed, the naked clothed, the sick healed, the oppressed freed, the lost saved, the love which prompted the gift is satisfied. When out of love you help those who are in need and they, they receive what you've given, that's it. That is the reward. Such love, which is God's own love expressed through man, brings with its own secret joys and desires no other reward we would say with the psalmist, we find time and time again, you are my portion, O Lord. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In Lamentations 3, which was the basis of one of the hymns we sang today, great is thy faithfulness. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The issue of reward only taints or contaminates the issue when we have the wrong view of reward. It's like, ooh, I gave somebody $100 because they needed it, and I know that God's going to give me back more than that. Well, okay, then you're off track. You've, you've missed the whole point. The reality is if you give something to someone and it helps them out, you should be that is the reward that you have been able to help someone who was in need if our audience is wrong then the issue of reward is is messed up as well i mean it messes us up because if the audience is others then we want to be rewarded so other people can see that we did a good thing or if we are our own audience, if people notice us and we get a sense of reward that way, then we feel even better about ourselves. You know, We live in a generation where everybody gets a trophy. And I think the trophy isn't simply for us. It's so that other people can see that I have a trophy. So when it comes to reward, our thinking is all twisted up. And Jesus wants us to know that when we help those in need, our Father sees it. And he rewards us. And how he rewards us is a sense of satisfaction. Is by the grace of God, I have obeyed God and helped someone who is in need. If our perspective is correct, our Father in heaven is the audience. No one else. And our consciousness is of him rather than of self or others. I will tell you honestly, this is easier said than done because others we can see. We can obviously see ourselves, we live with ourselves. God the Father we cannot see. The invisible audience versus the visible and we are people who go by sight oftentimes rather than by faith and so we are more nervous, we're more conscious, we're more fearful of what others will think or how we will view ourselves, whether or not we'll have the proper amount of self-esteem rather than looking to God as the one who is to be our one and true witness. The key to this section is audience, which we will see, uh, the Lord willing, as we continue. We are to help those who are in need, we are to use wisdom, we are to be aware, we are to ask God to show us opportunities to help those in need. And we are to be generous, we are to be open handed, but above all, We are to be aware of our Father who causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good, who causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And we are to help those who are in need. Let's pray together. Father, this passage, in many ways, sounds so foreign to us. I think we would be more comfortable if Jesus had said, if, if you decide, if you're thinking about helping someone in need, then this is how you do it. Rather than saying, when you do this, he assumes that we are helping those who are in need. We live in a selfish, self-centered culture. And any thought of helping those in need is way down the list. And even when it does show up on the list, it is so that we will be recognized for our contributions to others. Our audiences are wrong. begins with others, ends with self. But mostly it's about ourselves. We want to be recognized, praised by others. And we forget that other people cannot see into our hearts, into our minds. We don't even know ourselves. As Paul said, if he judged himself, it didn't make him innocent. You are the one who knows us. You know our hearts. And you call us to be generous to those who are in need, and to do it for the right audience. And that in helping, we will in fact be rewarded by seeing their needs met. This is certainly, in this generation, not a way to get people to join the movement. People want to be recognized. They want to be mentioned. They want to be praised. They want to get an award of some kind. Here Jesus calls us, to do things secretly, privately. I think apart from your grace, this is not gonna happen in our lives. May your spirit work in our lives, in our hearts. May we be generous and open-handed to those who are in need. May we think on these things in the days to come and not be hearers only, but doers of the word as well. We pray for Titus as he travels this week. He may be flying even now as we pray. Give him safety. Watch over Stacy and the girls as he's away. May we remember to pray for each other in the coming week. Pray for safety, for health. And we thank you for your love toward us. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.